Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Well, live from Elevate Studios in Los Angeles and from my house in Chicago, Illinois, it's another edition of the Elevate Together podcast. I'm Dan Katz, Vice President of Data Science and Innovation here at Elevate, and it's my pleasure to be with you here today for a special series of the Elevate Together podcast, which we call Inside the Engine Room, where we focus on the stories and people who bring us Elevate's award-winning products and services. My guest today is Warren Aiken, who's the Managing Director of Products here at Elevate. Warren, it's great to have you here today. It's great to be here, Dan. Thank you very much for letting me do this. I've been listening to these podcasts all along, and they've been just great. Thank you for the support. It's appreciated. So I thought at the outset, so Warren, you're the managing director of products here at Elevate. Can you have a very interesting story professionally? What's the one minute version of what you're up to today? I'm a combination of a SME, a subject matter expert, and a data scientist. I have a background practicing law for almost 28 years before I got into doing data science analytics. And then within Elevate, I have rolled through a number of different roles here over the last few years from working with customers on digital transformation projects to doing data science work to working with our development teams to bring that industry knowledge into their technology. So you said you practiced for 28 years. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the type of work you did when you were practicing law full time. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So I graduated out of law school back in 89. So I'm an old dog and I mostly did corporate work and bankruptcy work. For most of that time. And I, I worked at a couple of firms. And then around 2000, I started my own firm with a guy named Bill Swigert. And we basically did corporate and bankruptcy work for almost 15 years together. And then I worked up most recently, I think primarily as a bankruptcy trustee, which is essentially somebody who oversees bankruptcy cases. Tell us a little bit about what does a bankruptcy trustee do? It's a really interesting job because it's not just practicing law. You do have to be an expert at both bankruptcies that involve individuals consumer bankruptcy, right? People who file because they have financial problems. But you also have to really know how corporate bankruptcy works because you do that as well. And to some extent, you're a little bit of a businessman and a deal maker because a lot of it is about managing other lawyers and their work and in cutting deals, for example, selling off a business or doing corporate investigations. And you also have to know a lot of different areas of law because you get involved with personal injury cases, you get involved with environmental law matters, you get involved with tax and ERISA and uh, real estate. So there's all these different fields of law that you really have to know something about. It's really good background training, I think, for the kind of work that we do. So you were practicing law, you had a successful practice as a bankruptcy trustee, and somewhere along the way, you took a bit of a pivot and went into a different direction. And now you're programming and doing machine learning models and this type of work in data analytics. How did you make that transition? Was there a a single event? How did you go from bankruptcy trustee to doing the work that you're doing today? If I were going to pick out four pivotal points, it's going to be a podcast, two lunches, and a trip to San Francisco or Palo Alto to be more literal. Go back to around 2015. And I'm listening to a podcast by a guy named Dan Arley, who's a behavioral economist. His work focuses on a number of things. One of the things he really focuses on is the question of why people don't tell the truth, like why they lie and what goes into that. And that's really an interesting area for a bankruptcy trustee. And the reason is because people file bankruptcy and they lie about stuff, hide assets and things. And so it's really interesting to understand why they do that. 
I started digging into this research and learning more about behavioral economics. And you start to learn more about Daniel Kahneman's work with prospect theory, which turns out ties very tightly into negotiation theory, into litigation strategy planning. You get into data analytics just from studying behavioral economics and you get into game theory as well. I'm starting to learn about data and what you can do with data. And it's really interesting. This first lunch is with a friend. And this friend of mine ran what's called a quantitative shop at State Street Bank. And essentially what he does is applies data analytics to investing. And so we're talking about what you could do in the legal field. It's a great conversation. We're coming up with ideas of things you might be able to do with data in the legal field. And keep in mind, this is still 2015. So there's not a lot of knowledge out there about what you can do with this stuff. And I turned to him at one point, I get this idea. And I, I said to him, I said, what if I started a group in the American Bar Association on legal analytics? At the end of 2015, I suggested to the American Bar Association, that they start a legal analytics committee. And that gets me the second pivotal point. Having pitched this to the ABA as part of the pitch, I've got to figure out, are other people doing this? Is this a thing? Or am I the only person who's had this thought? So I go and I start to look and I find two things. Well, first of all, I find there's a guy who's teaching this stuff at a program in Chicago named Dan Katz. He's got a whole program on this. And then I found out that there's also a group that meets in Palo Alto every year out of Stanford. I said, that's fantastic too. And all they talk about is legal analytics and AI. So I went to Palo Alto. That's where I met you for the first time. I met Mike Bomarito, a lot of other people who have played a huge role in my journey. And so we started this program, which gets me to the second dinner. I was at a conference for the ABA in Chicago. This is September of 2017. And a friend had invited me to have dinner at the Girl and the Goat. And I said, well, I know this guy, Dan Katz. I'm going to invite him because he's an interesting guy. I don't know him well. So I remember we invited you to this dinner and you came along, you had dinner with us. And during this dinner, I'm talking about the fact that I'm sort of thinking, going in my head, thinking, can I do this professionally? At the time I was learning artificial intelligence. I had done a lot of academic sort of stuff, learning and playing around with data analytics. And you said to me, look, if you want to do it professionally, go write an article, publish, do something interesting and publish it. Literally." A couple of weeks after that lunch, a guy calls me up from a bankruptcy journal. And he says, Warren, can you give us an article for our journal in a couple of months? This journal was basically a law review quality journal. You can't do a law review quality article on anything in, in a couple of months. But at the time, I was working on a data science project. And I thought, well, if it works, it might be something I can publish. That's what I did. I ended up publishing the article. It all sort of stems from there. It's not a bad thing, but there are a lot of what I would call data science or AI cheerleaders in this space or people who are on the sidelines talking about things we ought to do, but they don't actually cross over and get in the game and actually work with real data and work on real projects. You had the interest, but could you show objective evidence to people that you can really do it? And you did. One question I had, okay, you did this project. I think they call it in the matrix, taking the red pill. And that's like when you really cross over and say, I'm actually going to stop doing law and I'm going to do this instead. Because there are a handful of lawyers, you're one of very few that have developed the technical chops and have the domain knowledge. It's not that many people total that have both. A lot of them just keep practicing law and they don't take the red pill. So why did you take the red pill? Why did you cross over? What led to that to say, you know, what, I'm going to do this professionally? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And I have to say, like, after 25 to 28 years of practicing law, you sort of get bored. Being a bankruptcy trustee for 15 years, you see new things, 
but it's sort of the same old things, right? The challenges aren't quite there anymore. I definitely took the red pill and boy, I swallowed it because what you realize is that you can do law a whole different way. I learned how to practice law a certain way. I had practiced law that way for decades. Everybody around me is practicing law that way. And you look at it and you say, look, I can practice law with numbers. If I practice law with numbers, I'll be far more effective at it than the way I was practicing. I can start to use math. I can start to use analytic techniques. I can start to use artificial intelligence. I like to call it, in some sense, practicing law at scale. As lawyers, traditionally, we don't do that. We practice law one case at a time, one fact pattern at a time, one matter at a time. And we never have an overall picture of what's going on in a really big way. This idea of being able to practice law with numbers, with quantitative methods, was just really powerful to me. I thought it would be a lot more interesting to spend time moving the profession in that direction. It's rare that you see a person that has that experience of law and then starts learning to program in Python. Now, you had some prior experience in program. Maybe that gave just a little window into what was possible. But yeah, I think that's an important part of it. I mean, in terms of doing a transition, I had learned to program when I was a kid. I had done Fortran and Basic at one point. And again, as a hobbyist, I had learned how to code web pages and build web pages and so forth. I had learned PHP, which is a language that you use for building web pages. You know, I had that experience. And if nothing else, it sort of gave me the ability to pick up things that I needed to pick up. My undergraduate degree was in economics. So I had some quantitative skills. The part that causes problems was you have somebody who's coming in and is exposed to the idea of working with analytics or working with artificial intelligence or working with structured systems. And they have just no way of wrapping their heads around that modality. And for them, it's a very big sea change in how they think about things. And that makes it very difficult. So if they at least had that exposure, I think they'll be much better off. And certainly having a basic idea of statistics or economic thought, I really do think that anybody who's going to the legal profession ought to have that background, right? As a precursor, the same way you would need it if you were going into economics or if you're going into the social sciences. Take us back for a moment to this paper that you wrote. Maybe you can explain what data did you collect? What did you find? What models did you use? A one to two minute version of what you did in the paper. Sure, because it's a great example of what I, I mean by practicing law at scale. So what we did is the bankruptcy court collects a certain basic amount of information on every single bankruptcy case, and it's publicly available. And so the question was, if I take this basic information about the beginning of a bankruptcy case, can I predict whether or not the case will be successful. So in other words, there's a particular outcome that they're trying to get out of each case. And the real question is, is there a relationship between that information that's available at the start of the case? Things like, do they have a lawyer? What court are they in? How much money do they owe? Do they have a house? Those kinds of things. Those correlate with success and failure. And it turns out that in about half the cases, we can predict whether the case would be successful or not successful with a very, very high degree of certainty. And the other half of the cases, you don't really know, but you also know that you don't know. But it turned out that it was actually really doable. And it's just very interesting. And you can only do that because you're looking at literally hundreds of thousands of bankruptcy cases in terms of the data. So you can learn something from that, that no 
single bankruptcy lawyer simply going on experience can possibly know. It was very interesting to me. So we had that dinner and I sort of thought, okay, I'll be interested to see if he goes and does something. And you most certainly did. And and it got published. I saw either the published copy or a draft copy. We were running Lexpredict at the time. And I said, take a look at what this guy Warren Aiken was doing. This looks pretty interesting. And I think we reconnected around then. And so you came and joined us not too long thereafter. We sold the company to Elevate. So tell folks what you've been working on, some of the projects or some of the topics that you've been working on. Being at Elevate put me in a position where I could finally walk away from what I was doing before. It gave me the opportunity to sort of prove to myself that I could do it professionally. I can also make a living doing it and I can replace the living I was making before. I've had an opportunity to go in with customers in the law firms and do consulting projects. I've had the opportunity to go into some of our law department customers and do deep dives into their data to see what's available and what you can tell from it. And the results there have been absolutely fascinating. I'm spending my time these days working with our ELM product team, helping both the project management side and the developer side just make those products better. It's really about their taking my knowledge of data systems, but also my knowledge of what lawyers do and what legal information looks like and help the developers do a better job so the products they're making are better. You're like very close to, in a sense, our target customer. We use the phrase user personas. One of our user personas is a lawyer like yourself working, whether it's in corporate legal or a law firm, who's maybe an experienced lawyer with product that we're building kind of meet their needs. Is it going to be fit for purpose for their needs? And that's where your role, as you said, you have multiple hats, but one is as a subject matter expert to make sure, hey, is this going to meet the mark or not? I don't want to be building a product that seems great to you, but the users say, what do I do with all this? It's either not sophisticated enough, or we like to say a 747 cockpit, 5,000 buttons, and you have no idea, how do I fly this plane? Maybe we can take the last few minutes to look over the horizon. So you've had the experience of now being in this area for a few years. What do you see over the horizon, the medium-term horizon around these topics of legal innovation, legal technology? From the work and exposure, we get to see what our customers are doing and what we're doing with them. I think It's really clear that we're at this cusp where things are really going to start accelerating in terms of practicing law at scale, using analytics and so forth. We're seeing some of our larger law firm customers. We're seeing law departments. We're seeing people who aren't our customers building out really strong capabilities in this area. They're building data shops. They're building data science teams. They're acquiring the technologies that they need. The other thing I've seen that's really, really interesting, as you said, there are people practicing law in the firms who have these extra skills. And I think for a long time, they were in the closet. They had it. Maybe they thought it would be useful, but they felt their organizations just didn't want to hear it. So they just sort of put that off to the side. And I think now they feel more empowered. And we're seeing this, right, where we're suddenly we'll see somebody in an apartment. He's their economics person or she's their project management person. The person who has these technical skills And suddenly they're coming out and they are being allowed to flower and expand and learn and apply these talents to the organization. So we're seeing them come into their own. And a lot of them, these are senior partners. I'm not necessarily talking about people who are three or four years out of the law school programs. These are people who have 30 years of law practice and have senior positions and they're very influential. Now that they can speak up and be listened to, they're going to start pushing the trend of building the capabilities 
And then fueling that as well is we're seeing continued growth of all these programs in the law schools that are turning out these phenomenal lawyers with technical skills. I mean, your Chicago Kent, of course, Dan Linna's program at Northwestern, David Colarusso's labs at Suffolk University, right? Georgia State University, Georgetown, Eusirius in Germany. I mean, the list goes on and on now. And quite frankly, in 2015, when I was first looking at this, there was one really big program and maybe three or four others that were floating around at smaller schools. And so it's a whole different seat path. We're seeing more and more and more of this. Definitely is on the schools. And you're right, even on a global basis, Singapore Management University, University of Toronto, IE in Madrid and Bucerius, and many other schools around the world, uh, law schools are taking interest in these topics. On the technical side, I know one of the things you're very interested in and that we use a lot are transformer-based technologies like word to vac BERT, GPT-2, hopefully GPT-3. You've been very interested in those. Maybe you could say a little bit and where you see those being useful embedded in legal tech. I really think that they're going to make a difference. We already know that there's some organizations that are rolling out capabilities or products specifically built on them that are really amazing. And we're spending a lot of time on using them as well, right? And building them into products. The transformers like BERT and their ability to basically understand legal tech and to really quickly build a system that acts like it knows what it's looking at. It doesn't really understand it, but it performs like it did. And it's just about finding the capabilities and actually building out the systems. GPT-2 is just amazing. I had the opportunity really a little over a year ago to play with it. and What I did is I trained a GPT-2 model using billing information, lawyer narratives. And then if you typed in a word like review, it would pump out. It would just come up with them out of thin air. All these billing narratives that look perfect. They just look like exactly what a lawyer would write. Now, what do I do with that? I don't know. But we will find applications for that. And I think they're going to be very powerful ones. There's general purpose technologies that are developed, and then there's some lag between how do people figure out how to project them into the work streams that are being done in this field. And it's true in other fields too. You know, if you were in med tech, you'd probably be a similar story. These are general technologies developed by OpenAI or by Google or what have you that become open source and available. But then there's still this like, how do you make it work in our field piece? And that's why you need somebody who knows the domain well enough and knows those technical libraries or models or methods well enough to figure out how to connect the pieces. That's really, to me, that's one of the big bottlenecks in the actual real-life deployment of these technologies in real life, so to speak. That's one of the bottlenecks. You have to have people who understand both at a very deep level. And it also takes time just to get the engineering part down in order to move something into production. It's one thing to play with it, but then it's a much more difficult process to actually get something into the hands of people who are going to use it. It's going to be a real game changer, I think. Well, Warren, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Elevate Together podcast, Inside the Engine Room, where we focus on the stories and people who help bring us Elevate's award-winning products and services. It's been my pleasure. I'm Dan Katz, Vice President of Data Science Innovation here at Elevate. See you next time. Take care. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. 
available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and ElevateServices.com. 